It is the story of Christ Jesus, dead, entombed, and resurrected, that represents the full picture of what we're to know of his Easter sacrifice. Many shortchange Jesus' significance by not telling or believing in his complete work. It is only these components told together that represent the true work of God. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Our Message of Salvation series continues today with a special Easter message called Proof Positive. It is the book of Acts that we'll use to gain a full and complete understanding of the work of God. Well, Phil, what makes Jesus' resurrection different from others we know of, like Lazarus or the boy that Elijah saw God bring back to life, or even the dead man whose body touched Elisha's bones? Well, Mark, I think actually we should only use the word resurrection to refer to what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday. And those other stories from the Bible, those are true stories of someone coming back to life. But all of those people were brought back to life in a mortal body that would die again. That's not what happened on Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ was raised in an immortal body of glorious splendor that will never die again. And that's what a resurrection is. Well, you'll be sharing with us John's account of the empty tomb and the burial clothes that remain behind. Do you have an opinion on the legitimacy of the Shroud of Turin or other items that are used as proofs of Jesus' existence? Well, Mark, people are always looking for some way of proving the resurrection, aren't they? Or maybe disproving the resurrection. Uh, I know there are some people who happen to think that the Shroud of Turin may be a good uh, piece of historical evidence for the resurrection. Uh, I personally don't think so, but in a way that's really beside the point. What we are called to believe is the word that God has given us in the gospel, which testifies to the truth of the resurrection. And we don't need any physical evidence from the world today to prove that. Although it's interesting, if you look at the story in the gospel of the resurrection, when John went into the empty tomb and saw the burial clothes and saw how they were arranged, he knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And we can believe on the basis of his testimony. And we'll hear his testimony in today's message. All right. Thanks, Phil. Turn in your Bible now to Acts chapter 13, verse 26, and listen to God's Word for us today. We've been having a series of sermons on the message of salvation, and tonight I want to begin with a quotation from John Calvin that summarizes some of the major themes we've been discussing in recent weeks. Calvin writes, The only haven of safety is in the mercy of God, as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. As all mankind are in the sight of God lost sinners, we hold that Christ is their only righteousness. Since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions, by his sacrifice he has appeased the divine anger, By his blood he has washed away our stains, by his cross has borne our curse, and by his death has made satisfaction for us. And we maintain that in this way man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father, by no merit of his own, by no value of works, but by God's mercy. 
And that is what we have been saying in these recent weeks, that through his death on the cross as our sacrificial substitute, Jesus Christ has expiated our sins, that is, he has covered our guilt, and that he has propitiated the divine wrath, that is, that he has turned it aside and thereby reconciled us to God. But how do we know that all this is true? How can we really be sure that we really are reconciled to God? Is there any proof that God has accepted Christ's death on the cross as the vicarious atonement for our sins? And if there is any proof, what is it? Well, there is solid proof that Christ accomplished our salvation through his cross. And one of the best places to find it is in Acts chapter 13, and I encourage you to turn there again. This passage is especially significant for our purposes because it's the only place in the Bible where the Bible speaks explicitly of the message of salvation, which is what we have been talking about this autumn. Now, the man who preached this saving message was the Apostle Paul, who was then midway through his first missionary journey. Paul and a number of his companions had been commissioned by the church at Antioch to spread the good news throughout the Mediterranean. And guided by the Holy Spirit, they traveled through the various islands of the Mediterranean Sea and then on to Asia Minor. As they traveled through Pisidia, they came to another city, which was also called Antioch, and there they followed their usual strategy for missions. So we read in verse 14 at the end that on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down, and after the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers said, Brothers, if you have a message for the people, please speak. Well, did Paul ever have a message? It was the message of salvation. And he stood up and gestured for quiet and began a brief survey of Jewish history, the story of salvation. The Jews were God's chosen people, and so their salvation began with their election. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers, verse 17. What God chose to do was to deliver them from their bondage in Egypt. And so Paul recounted the history of the Exodus, how God had rescued his people from their slavery, and then established his kingdom in the promised land, culminating in David, a king after his own heart. The purpose of Paul's survey was to remind those Jews in Pisidian Antioch that their God was a God who saves. He also wanted to tell them that the past was only a prologue. Paul was in the synagogue that day to announce that the Savior God had always promised had finally come. What he said in verse 23 must have created quite a stir in the congregation He said, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Notice that Paul called Jesus the Savior because he is the one and only true Savior of humanity. The apostle proceeded to explain what Jesus had done to accomplish our salvation, and the main thing that he had done was to die. I suppose this would have been news to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. They would not have heard, many of them, of Jesus of Nazareth. 
They would not have known that he had been rejected by Jewish scribes and executed by Roman soldiers. They would not have believed that he had been crucified, dead, and buried as we do. Nor would they have understood the most important thing of all, that by his death, Jesus had become their promised Savior. So far in this series of sermons, we've discussed a number of significant images of salvation. We've talked about deliverance and redemption and atonement and reconciliation. And we've seen that each of these aspects of God's saving work was promised in the Old Testament. And further, that each of them was accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament promised deliverance, like the deliverance from Egypt. And so God sent Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, and the way that he gave himself was on the cross. The Old Testament promised redemption, and of course, the ransom price was paid by Christ on the cross. The Scripture says that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The Old Testament promised atonement, and so God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The Old Testament promised reconciliation, a permanent end to the hostilities between God and humanity. This, too, was accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ so that God reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death, Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. And so you see that the message of salvation keeps bringing us back to the cross, It is by his death that Jesus has rescued us from sin and redeemed us from slavery and covered our guilt and turned aside God's wrath and made us friends with God. And yet what we need to see tonight is that there is more to salvation than the cross. If all Jesus had done was to die on the cross, we could never be saved. It is true that salvation comes by grace alone, in Christ alone, but not through the cross alone. No, whenever the New Testament presents the message of salvation, it always preaches the crucifixion plus the resurrection. Consider Paul's famous statement of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. By this gospel you are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. In the message of salvation, it is never the cross alone, but always the cross plus the empty tomb. Jesus saves us by his vicarious crucifixion and by his victorious resurrection. Now, what is it that Paul tells us about the resurrection in these verses? Well, he tells us, Three things, I think. He presents the resurrection as a historical fact and a biblical fulfillment with a saving function. It's a historical fact and a biblical fulfillment with a saving function. The sermon starts really with the simple fact of the resurrection. We find it in verse 30. God raised him, meaning Jesus, from the dead. What does it mean exactly that God raised Jesus from the dead? Well, resurrection does not simply mean that Jesus came back to life. There's more to resurrection than resuscitation. 
By his supernatural power, God had brought people back to life before. Think of Lazarus. He's the most famous example, but there were others in both the Old and the New Testaments. And in each of those miracles, a person who was certainly dead was genuinely restored to life. And yet that is not all that happened to Jesus. His resurrection was unprecedented because he did not simply return to his former physical state. He reached a whole new level of human existence. After spending three days in the tomb, Jesus was raised to receive a magnificent body of immortal splendor. Consider the remarkable physical properties of that glorious resurrection body. As we read the Gospels, we discover that it was and is transportable. After his resurrection, Jesus was capable of traveling vast distances in a single instant and suddenly appearing in the midst of his disciples. And his body was and is audible and tangible. After the resurrection, Jesus' disciples were able to hear him and even to touch him. His body is recognizable. The first eyewitnesses of the resurrection knew that they were seeing Jesus. And the fact that they saw him with their own eyes proves further that his resurrection body is visible and perceptible. Those who have seen him since he ascended to heaven report that he is beautiful beyond description, dazzling in his radiant glory. And finally, the resurrection body of Jesus Christ is imperishable. His body will retain its shining luminescence for all eternity without ever dimming or darkening. This is all part of what the Bible means when it says simply, God raised him from the dead. For when God raised Jesus by the power of his spirit, he did not simply resuscitate him. He gave him a resurrection body that is glorious beyond description. But is it really true? That's what the Bible says, but did God actually raise Jesus from the dead or not? It's interesting that the biblical gospels do not argue for the resurrection. I simply assert it as a plain historical fact, and yet we still have the question, can we take their word for it? Can we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event? Now, there are many people who would say no. To give one recent example, the German scholar Gerd Ludemann has recently reached the appalling conclusion that the tomb of Jesus was not empty but full, and his body did not disappear but rotted away. Now that is the kind of objection that demands an answer. It demands an answer because there is no salvation without resurrection. We could not have our series of sermons on the message of salvation without a sermon on the resurrection. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Further, knowing the truth about the resurrection is also important because the most serious historical questions about Jesus of Nazareth concern his being raised from the dead. Oh, the facts about his life and death are easy enough to demonstrate. No credible historian seriously doubts that Jesus was born in Bethlehem or raised in Nazareth or crucified in Jerusalem. These facts have ample attestation outside the Bible and abundant testimony within it. 
Now, the real historical issue concerns the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Look at verse 30. He based his case for the resurrection on the testimony of those who knew Jesus best. It's verse 30 and verse 31. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Now, who were these witnesses? We'll start with Mary Magdalene. She was the first to see the risen Christ, and her testimony is significant not only because she was the first, but also because she was a woman. If the disciples had fabricated the resurrection, it would have been folly for them in those days to base their story on the word of a woman. No one would have believed them, especially among the Jews, because a woman's testimony was inadmissible in a Jewish court of law. Yet the Bible does nothing to hide what some might have considered to be an awkward fact. No, it makes Mary the first witness because she was, in fact, the first to see Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And then there was John. John believed in the resurrection even before he saw the risen Christ. When he arrived at the tomb, John discovered that the tomb was not quite empty. The scripture says, this is John chapter 20 at verse 6, he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Apparently what John saw were the burial wrappings left undisturbed. The word folded up there is a little misleading. The grave clothes had not been unrolled by grave robbers or by Jesus himself. No, the turban-like wrapping that had been twirled around Jesus' head was still intact. And when John saw this, he believed that Jesus was risen. How could a corpse that was tightly wrapped in the oriental style be removed without disturbing the burial shroud? It was still intact when John went into the tomb. The only possible explanation he could think of was that somehow Jesus, in a glorious new body, had simply passed through his grave clothes, and John believed in the resurrection. Besides Mary and John, there were many other witnesses to the resurrection. The Bible records at least 12 post-resurrection appearances in all. There was Peter, who denied Jesus three times and yet met the risen Christ by the sea and preached him as boldly as any apostle. What could possibly account for Peter being transformed from such great fear to such great courage, except seeing the risen Christ? There were the other disciples, including Thomas, who met with Jesus in a private home. There was a couple that broke bread with Jesus in Emmaus. There was James the brother of Jesus, who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ before he died, but came to trust him after he rose again. There were more than 500 others who saw Jesus on a single occasion. There was even Paul himself preaching this sermon who had met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Well, there is no doubt that all these men and women believed that Jesus appeared to them in his resurrection body. 
Even scholars who deny the bodily resurrection admit that the first Christians had some kind of personal experience which led them to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. A moment ago, I mentioned Gerd Ludemann, who contends that the corpse of Jesus rotted away in his tomb, and yet nevertheless admits that it is historically certain that Peter and the other disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Well, how can these experiences be explained? Were they hallucinations, the product of wishful thinking? No, any psychological explanation becomes thoroughly implausible when we remember that Jesus did not appear once but many times to groups as well as to individuals at various times and in various circumstances. No merely psychological explanation can account for the numerous post-resurrection appearances of Christ. All these witnesses were people who knew Jesus well and were thus well qualified to testify about his resurrection. And all of them doubted at first. This is significant. They were unable to conceive how Jesus could possibly have returned from the dead. And thus, when they gave their testimony that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead, it was the strong testimony of skeptics who had become believers. And furthermore, they saw Jesus with their own eyes. Some of them ate meals with him and had the opportunity to touch him. They were eyewitnesses of his bodily resurrection. As a result of all these factors, one noted British lawyer, Sir Edward Clark, a man who made a prolonged study of the evidence for the resurrection, concluded, to me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. Now, the Apostle Paul also accepted the testimony of truthful men, but he was not content to claim the resurrection as a historical fact alone. He also wanted to proclaim it as a biblical fulfillment. God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day in order to complete the Old Testament promise of salvation. The good news about Jesus is not simply that he rose again, but that by being raised from the dead, he was proven to be the promised Savior. His resurrection was the proof of God's promise. As you may know, the Old Testament contains many prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. There are at least 50 specific prophecies which pertain to such matters as the place of his birth and the unusual circumstances surrounding his death. What of the resurrection? It is sometimes said that there is no doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And in one sense, I suppose this is true. No one could fully understand the resurrection until Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Resurrection is a good example of the gradual progression of God's revelation. 
And yet from the very earliest days, God's people longed for the resurrection of the body and believed that one day there would be a risen humanity. In his sermon at Pisidian Antioch, Paul mentions three Old Testament prophecies that have a direct bearing on the resurrection. He had already called attention to the fact that Jesus was a direct descendant of King David. And he went on to mention what the Bible had promised about the resurrection of David's Christ. When you look in verses 32 through 37, you can see set off from the rest of the text, the three promises. The first quotation comes from Psalm 2, You are my son, and today I have become your father. Psalm 2 is about the victory of God's chosen ruler over all his enemies. The psalm starts with a rebellion in which the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. As the psalm continues, the uprising is defeated. And although he is rejected by angry men, this ruler is anointed as God's king and appointed as God's son. And in the end, he triumphs, ruling over the whole earth with his fierce justice. Now, it would seem that Psalm 2 must refer to David or to one of the other kings of Israel, since this anointed one is enthroned in the psalm as the king on Mount Zion. The first Christians understood this psalm to refer also to the Christ, where everything in it perfectly describes his person and work. Jesus was anointed by his father to be the king. He was opposed by the nations, both Jew and Gentile alike. And yet God identified Jesus as his unique son. When Jesus was baptized, the Father practically quoted from Psalm 2, verse 7, and said, You are my son. And now Jesus is that kingly son who reigns from God's supreme throne. The point is, the point that Paul is trying to make by quoting this verse is that whatever promises God made to David find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So what did God promise to David? Well, the answer is given in Paul's second quotation, which comes from the book of Isaiah. Here is how it reads in Isaiah, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. This is Isaiah 55, verse 3. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. God gave his people this promise while they were still in exile to remind them that his covenant would last forever. The reason it would last forever is because God had made them unbreakable love promises through his servant David. His promise to David concerned the kingdom of Israel. God had said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God had also made this very specific promise to David, and it comes in Paul's third quotation. You can see it in verse 35. Here's the promise. You will not let your Holy One see decay. This prophecy comes from Psalm 16, in which David wrote, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. 
Now, there is an obvious problem with this promise. And that is that David died. Thus, he did see decay. The Apostle Paul was well aware of this difficulty. He went on to call attention to it in verse 36. He says that when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was bodied with his fathers, and his body decayed. And so here is the puzzle. God made a promise to David which seemed to be false. By his everlasting covenant, he had promised to give David an incorruptible throne. And yet David was dead and buried, and his body had returned to the dust. What is the answer to this puzzle? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. What God had been planning all along was that someone even greater than David would come to save his people. The way that God made good on his promise was by sending Jesus. And how is it that we know that Jesus really is the promised Savior? It's because of the resurrection. It's because God did not allow his body to decay, but raised him from the dead on the third day. Thus Paul's argument, his biblical argument, comes to its conclusion in verse 37. The one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. It's a way of telling the people in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and also us that the promises of the Old Testament find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's appointed son. Jesus is God's anointed king. And the historical fact of his bodily resurrection is proof positive for the biblical fulfillment of God's promise to David. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. The last thing to say is that Paul's preaching about the resurrection was not merely historical and biblical, but it was also practical. And his sermon thus closes with this application. We find it in verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You see, the reason it matters whether Jesus rose from the dead or not is that your salvation depends on it. The resurrection is a historical fact and a biblical fulfillment that has a saving function. And really, the proof that God saves is all wrapped up in the resurrection. Imagine for a moment that Jesus died on the cross but never rose from the grave. Just imagine that for a moment. In that case, how could you be sure that Jesus really had dealt with your sin and with all of its terrible consequences, with guilt and with alienation and with suffering and with death. Well, the most that you could say is perhaps God has accepted the cross of Christ as the atonement for my sin, but I cannot know for certain. You see, you would have no receipt to show you that the price of your redemption had been paid in full. You would have no token of affection to show that you had been reconciled to God. And you would have no reason to believe in the resurrection of your own body. 
If God could not raise Jesus from the dead, how could you expect him to raise anyone else, least of all yourself? You see, the point is that you cannot be saved by a dead Jesus, but only by a living Christ. And that is exactly why Paul called this sermon the message of salvation. The fact is that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul has made his case for the resurrection, for the resurrection as a historical fact, and for the resurrection as a historical fulfillment. What he's trying to show is that the crucifixion was only the verdict of sinful men, but that it has been overturned on appeal, and that God has rendered his verdict on Jesus Christ and on his saving work through the resurrection. By raising Jesus from the dead, God showed that Jesus did not die in vain, that his sacrifice was accepted, and now all the blessings of salvation are ours in Christ, deliverance and redemption and expiation and propitiation and reconciliation and all the rest of it. The resurrection is God's personal seal of approval on the crucifixion. It is proof positive for the message of salvation. It is God's attestation that Jesus is the Savior. It proves that we are delivered from our sins. The price that Jesus paid to ransom us was high enough. It proves that our guilt is covered, that God's wrath against our sin has been turned aside, and that we are now the friends of God. The way Paul summarizes all of these blessings of salvation is simply to assure us that we are forgiven for our sins. Now, this message of salvation is good news, but I must tell you that you must actually believe it to be saved. This message forces everyone to make a personal commitment. Only those who believe the message are saved. It's through Jesus that forgiveness is promised, and therefore it's only by believing in Jesus that forgiveness can be received. That's what Paul says in verse 39. It's through him everyone who believes is justified. And thus Paul ends his sermon in Pisidian Antioch by exhorting the congregation to believe the gospel. Listen to the warning that he gives them. Verse 40, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. Sadly, that is exactly what happened to some of his listeners on that occasion. They perished. They were filled with jealousy. They heaped Paul with abuse. They stirred up so much persecution that finally he was driven out of the region altogether. The reason they did these things was specifically because they did not believe the resurrection, which everyone must believe to be saved. As Paul said on another occasion, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The implication is that if you do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are not saved. No, I am sorry to say it, but you are like the people who rejected Paul's message and thereby proved, this is what Paul says in verse 46, that they were not worthy of eternal life. And yet happily, on that day, 
And I hope on this night there were many people who were counted worthy of eternal life, who believed and were therefore saved. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city crowded into that synagogue to hear the message of salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. This is what happens whenever the message of salvation is preached. There are some who believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They accept it as a historical fact. They trust it as a biblical fulfillment. The question that is being raised for you tonight is very simple. It is this. Do you believe in the empty tomb? Or if you do, then the resurrection will have for you its saving function. And God will save you from your sins by His grace. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for this salvation. And we give you praise that you have not left us hanging wondering whether Christ really did accomplish anything on his cross. No, it is all made so very certain by the empty tomb, and we give you praise for it. We serve a risen Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.